Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and thank you for joining us today. Before we jump into today's topic, I just wanted to encourage you to go and listen to uh, last week's episode where we talked about gifts being put under the tree by God um, that are given to us, specifically apologetics gifts. And we talked about the Davidic uh, covenant, the promise that was made to David that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. It was a really, really cool episode. Um, So check that out. Dr. Woodward, how are you today? Oh, I feel ebullient and kind of feisty. (laughs) It's a fun and feisty day to be celebrating Christmas and apologetics. That's a twofer, isn't it? Two for one. Yeah, it is. It is. I went and visited the Tabernacle in the Wilderness uh, exhibit in Tarpon Springs, which I'd never done. And that was really, really interesting. Wow. You know, I I, I can compare that amazing uh, visit uh, that we had to the Tabernacle uh, just up here at the northwest end of Tampa Bay. And I remember when I saw that, I said, this is like one of the highlights of my entire life, because you're not just talking about or seeing a diagram or even somebody creating a little midget model of the tabernacle. It's the real deal. I mean, like to scale with spectacular visual effects, right? I mean, they they hit the ball out of the ballpark, I think. Yeah, right. It was to scale and all the colors on the, the curtains and everything were right. It was just really cool. Yeah, so if anyone ever comes down to Tampa Bay and you want to include, if you go nearby to the Tarpon Springs Sponge Docks, a famous place we love to go and get some of that Greek food and the Hellas restaurant or other great restaurants, you can just swing by and visit the Tabernacle display. And um, so if you have any questions about that, you can just uh, contact Nick. I'm going to make you in charge of the uh, information Um, passing on that on that point since since you've been there most recently. But today I'd like to talk about some of the other both scientific, historical and especially biblical pointers that the the faith that we have in Christ. And that's that's really what our, our goal is, is to nurture, to stimulate and to almost set uh, on a new path with uh, more passion and more confidence than ever anyone's faith in Christ that already is a Christian. And secondly, not just Christians are invited to listen on, but people who are just kind of neutral, maybe just checking out the idea of God and maybe even of Scripture. Is there anything to this thing that we call the Bible? 66 books uh, written over a period of more, a little bit more than 2,000 years. And yet what we're saying here is that the excitement is found in verifying, in validating, in confirming our faith and seeing it resting on solid foundations everywhere you look. And that's kind of part of the excitement of Christmas is that Christmas is where God accomplished the impossible. And that is God entered the very creation that he had spawned, that he had crafted and initiated with the creation of the universe first, the raw materials of the heavens and the earth, and then, and then uh, of course, setting up the beauty of a million, literally over a million species 
of animals and another probably half a million to a million of plant species, not to mention the microbial tiny, you know, one cell species. And we're gonna be talking about one of those new species found in the fossil record today, but then he created the, the grandeur of human history. If you see Acts 17 in perspective, the book of Acts, of course, has many speeches by Paul, but the one directed to the intellectuals at Athens, the top thinkers and philosophers of Paul's day, is where he says God has created not only the world, not only humanity, but he's even created uh, geopolitical history. He's created the boundaries that, that set, are set around nations, and his goal is that people might grasp, as it were, and, and reach out to him and touch him and find him. And he says, uh, God is not far from any one of us, because in him we live and move and have our being. Wow, what a fantastic statement of the omnipresence of God. And yet, God has become closest to us in the person of Christ, because he entered human history. As Jesus has um, entered human history, God accomplished what Lewis, C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle. And um, speaking of that, I just want to just mention as we get uh, digging under the tree and finding more apologetics nuggets, uh, you know, packages that we can unwrap for our early Christmas time celebration, that C.S. Lewis himself will be the focus of a 15-week course that I'll be teaching, and it's available online. All you need to do is send a quick, hey, I'm interested, you know, on the C.S. Lewis course, something like that, to information at apologetics.org. That's our website. Thank you, Nick, for reminding us. You know, um, I think you you do the best job of reminding people of our website as anybody in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Yeah, but uh, apologetics.org, of course, the homepage has tons of cool videos, including some that we just put up there recently. But if you just want to send an email to us, just use the word information and then your at sign, information at apologetics.org, and just ask about the C.S. Lewis course, and we'll include the information on the theology of spiritual growth, theology of sanctification. That's the second course I'm teaching, and then, of course, Darwinism and Intelligent Design, a third course. All of them are available online as well. You can be anywhere in the U.S., anywhere in the world, and just hop right in, participate, as it were, as an observer in the lectures, or you can come right to the Trinity College campus where the C.S. Lewis Society has been housed uh, ever since we moved it down from Princeton, New Jersey. So um, that's Trinity College of Florida, if you're interested in getting more information about the college. But of course, um, the online access point to get more information on those courses is uh, information at apologetics.org. Well, um, I'm excited about the, the variety of gifts that we still have under the Christmas tree. Are you ready to dig in, Nick? Uh, I'm absolutely ready. Okay, let's go ahead and just tear open the first present that we see. Ah, I see a, a, a timely, just in time for Christmas, the scientists who have been amazed at the number of phyla that are found in the Cambrian explosion. And of course, uh, Nick, we've had on Steve Meyer, who's probably the world's leading expert on the Cambrian explosion mm. and how it has evidence for design. Would you say that the explosion is getting bigger over time or is it shrinking over time, Nick? Yes, uh, it's getting bigger and more difficult to explain unless you admit that God created everything. There you go. Okay. I mean, so 
if, if you're going to follow a Darwinian train of thinking, you would expect all the diversity of life to be connected, as it were, by a tree where you can actually follow the meandering changes of the pathways splitting the roads, as it were, to different kinds of animals splitting over time. And you would find them spread out through uh, Earth history in the fossil record, if that contains the full record of, well, reputedly 3.8 billion years of Earth history. And especially since the, um, the animals of more than one cell uh, arrived on the scene, and we're talking about eukaryotes, that's the technical word. The eukaryotes actually fall into several dozen phyla, major categories of living things. There was one phyla that did not appear until the Silurian-Devonian era, about 70 million years after the Cambrian, and that's the Bryozoa. And now, boom, just this past week, they announced that even the Bryozoa, the moss animals they're called, because they look a little bit like moss, but they're a colony of incredibly complex little animals that knit themselves together in a mat, like a carpet. And that's why they were nicknamed the Bryozoan. And these animals were found, of course, uh, beautifully preserved in the fossilized rock. By the way, they look the same in the fossils as they do now. Hmm, think about that. If evolution is a story of change over time, why have they not changed? Why do they look virtually the same in the fossil evidence as they look if you go out and, and dig into some kind of uh, a lake or you know some uh, edge of a sea and you see the bryozoans there today? That doesn't look like change over time. That doesn't even meet the minimum standards of Darwinian uh, patterns. But I, I, I am going to get back on the main point, which is that they have now have uh, uncovered spectacular and fully confirmed evidence of these bryozoans popping into the to the fossil record absolutely perfectly modern form and yet they're they're clearly of that particular phylum and so we can add another whole category of living things that is disconnected from other phyla there isn't the slightest hint of any in between any transitional forms between any of these two dozen phyla that appear in the fossil record. And I would defer anyone who wants to watch online, I think there may be uh, Ukrainian or Russian subtitles, but the film Darwin's Dilemma is a great way in just about an hour and five minutes to get the summary of all of the evidence for the Cambrian explosion. But if you wanna just, um, you know, just read a whole book on it, the, the book that came out oh, about seven years ago and is still causing headaches, uh, even more now than ever, is Darwin's Doubt. And that was penned by our, our friend uh, at the Discovery Institute, Steve Meyer. Steve Meyer has even commented that this new evidence uh, could almost make you know, an, an addition, uh, you know, like an additional appendix to the, if they were going to put out another book, because now virtually every single phylum is found in the Cambrian Explosion which is a massive problem if you're going to say Darwinian evolution accomplished it. Because why would Darwinian evolution uh, suddenly overnight, I mean, in a putative blink of the eye, looking at geological history, it's like a blink of the eye, less than a million, less than a billion years, excuse me, less than a million years uh, by geological time is a blink of the eye. And why would an these animals suddenly roar into existence with such complexity 
and such diversity with no hint of having actually evolved from earlier, simpler precursors, that is, ancestors in the fossil record. And so this is, again, buttressing and confirming a pattern that has been so obvious that even two atheist professors at Columbia and at Harvard, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge, have written extensively on the problem. And they basically called their fellow paleontologists to face the music, okay? And their own theory of punctuated equilibrium developed some 30 years ago is now falling apart. So the, uh, the news on the headline level is that Darwinian theory is again dying, um, you might say, another death in front of the science uh, journalists worldwide, as it has no way to account for the sudden appearance of the bryozoa in the Cambrian. Well, let's move into history. The wonderful thing about historical research and, and its dovetailing, its perfect fit with historical research, is that we find an amazing confirmation that Luke, and keep in mind, Luke and Matthew are the two Gospels. They're called synoptic Gospels. They, along with Mark, are the three uh, that have uh, provide a synopsis of the main events in Galilee, especially. The, the main teaching, the parables, the sermons, but most of all, the 35 miracles of Christ, almost all of them pop up in the synoptic Gospels. Well, two of the synoptic Gospels have accounts that fit together quite well. The story that we find in Luke, which is focused uh, on the, the, the element of joy and celebration. It's focused on Mary, especially, and the angel Gabriel. It's amazing to see what, you know, uh, is found as Gabriel really ministers in two stages, uh, first to the, to the father of John the Baptist, and then, of course, in part two, in bringing the great message to Mary, that she will be the virgin who gives birth to the Messiah. So the story in Luke is uh, filled with that joyous, uh, almost celebratory, and just, you know, and a burst after burst of thanksgiving and praise to God. But when you go into Matthew, it's, it's a little bit darker. It's a little bit more scary and foreboding as the danger factor of Herod, as he tries to uh, work in a sneaky way through the Magi when they come to worship the already born at that point, a uh, little, um, you know, one or two year old Jesus and still living in, in Bethlehem. And so that that's part two of the, of the course, beautiful story of Christmas. But what we find is that the credibility of Luke over the last hundred years, after being under attack during the rise of liberalism in the especially mid to late 1800s, we see liberalism um, really kind of a, an offshoot of what Schleiermacher was teaching in his post in Berlin in Germany as a uh, Protestant uh, preacher and theologian. We see the moving away from the actual historical credibility of Christ through the writings of uh, Strauss and von Harnack and so many other theologians. Uh, Rauschenbusch, of course, is involved in even uh, in the United States, as they as early as 1910 and 1920, in that range of 10 years during World War I, the seminaries of the United States, in even the Northern Baptist 
denomination as it was referred to at that time. The Southern Baptists uh, were a little bit different. They were kind of insulated, but the Methodist denominations, uh, many of the Lutheran, not all, but many of the Lutheran denominations, Episcopalian uh, denomination, United Church of Christ, which was evangelical and reformed, these denominations at the level of their seminary were turning more and more liberal and were doubting the credibility of whether Luke even wrote Luke or whether Matthew really wrote Matthew. And so if you would go, for example, when I was in high school in the 19, late 60s, and when in, I went into college and graduated in the early 70s, you wouldn't really be able to count on the fingers of one hand any of the mainstream theological seminaries that still confidently taught the truth of the gospel and included the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And so the, the lockhold that liberalism came to have on the higher, what were so-called the echelon of uh, outstanding, you know, scholarly, re reputable seminaries, the, the hold on the seminaries uh, was almost universal, except for a handful of seminaries, uh, you know, and I could name among them Trinity Divinity School in Chicago, Dallas Seminary, where I attended, Western uh, Denver, uh, Reformed in Florida uh, at this point, last 30 years. We could talk about Westminster Seminary. These are the, the outstanding conservative seminaries were raised up. And at these conservative seminaries, the scholarship began to explode. The work of Daryl Bach and Dan Wallace at Dallas Seminary, for example, began to show that indeed the evidence was clear, decisive, and even overwhelming that not only did Luke write the book of Luke and the book of Acts, not only did Luke have excellent historical sources and was walking literally the roads of the Roman Empire with Paul much of the time, if you look at the book of Acts Many sections are really, we went here and we saw that. And so the famous we sections of the book of Acts show that Luke was a participant in history. He was not just gathering stories, jotting down notes, hearsay. He was interviewing the eyewitnesses. Paul himself interviewed at close quarters. We know from the book of Galatians, the eyewitnesses. So when you're talking about the virgin birth, that is contained in the book of Luke, it is clearly conveyed by Mary herself, as she says in many of the verses of Luke, referred to Mary treasured the memory of these things that were being said to her. She literally memorized them on the spot and mulled them over and brought them back to mind perhaps hundreds and hundreds of times the rest of her life. And so it's highly likely that Luke not only interviewed uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, but was immersed in a body of detailed uh, recollections so rich that he just had to kind of figure out, okay, from this huge you know, reservoir of data, what, to, what do I include in my account? And so what we have in the book of Luke, the story of Christmas is a carefully, not only scholarly carefully, but I would say spiritually attuned is targeted to the human mind and to the human heart. So what we see in the book of Luke is a fabulous, you are there experience of the moments, the critical turning point moments in the 
prophecy of Jesus coming, as we referred to the, in our sharing last week, this is the Davidic covenant coming into a full fulfillment mode. And we see so many connections with the prophecies of the coming of Jesus in the book of Daniel. So let me just point out that the timing was perfect for the fulfillment of the Daniel 9 prophecy. Now, you may say, how does Christmas connect with Daniel 9? Well, just in this way, that in the book of Daniel, in chapter 9, um, the incredible speaking of, you know, we're talking about Gabriel, Gabriel appears there to the, to the uh, benefit of all of the, the Christians and even Jewish believers before that through the years, but uh, Gabriel gives, gives this incredible message of encouragement that the plan, the, the countdown, the time frame has been established for the coming of Messiah. And you talk about a hallelujah moment in the Bible. This is one of the top. And so when, uh, you know, Daniel is struggling in prayer, confessing the sins of Israel in the first 20, um, 23 verses of of Daniel chapter 9. He's interrupted in the midst of this beautiful confessional prayer by the angel Gabriel who says, your, your, your prayers are, are going to be now seen as fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah. And it says he will come and he will literally die. He will be cut off, it says, at a point which is 69 weeks which is 483 years. Each week of years is seven years. So if you're somebody's 49 years old, seven times seven is 49, they're seven weeks old. So um, I would say, Nick, you're about three weeks old. No, no, you're about four weeks old now, right? That's somewhere around there. Yeah, so somewhere around there. So I want to, I'm going to reveal how many weeks old I am. But if a week is seven years, and if literally 69 weeks of years, according to, to the prophecy given to Daniel by the angel, um, during that period of countdown, which begins with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, when is that? 444 BC. Do the math, the 480, um, 483 years comes out to exactly 33 AD using the prophetic years that are given in the book of Daniel, the, the end of the Messiah's life is 33 AD. And if that's going to be the case, and if he's going to be middle age, back it up, you know, do the backwards count from 33 AD. If you say, oh, I think the Messiah, when he is at his peak of strength and, and power, is going to be preaching for maybe a couple years, He'll be maybe in his mid-30s. That means he would be born a couple years BC, and the estimate is four or five BC. So the fantastic, one of the greatest prophecies of the entire Bible really sets the stage for the coming and the birth of Christ 33 years before and 37 years, perhaps up to that many, 38 years, about five BC, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, and the rest is history. I think that's pretty exciting to see how even the prophecy of Daniel fits in. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I do. And, and I think one of the most amazing things that people in general don't, we don't spend enough time doing is just looking at these prophecies and how specifically they're fulfilled. 
Um, not as though it's just some vague prophecy that anyone could have kind of been assigned to, but they're so specific that they're undeniable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's very very powerful, and I think the uh, the coming year, as we're going to be interviewing a lot of scholars on historical evidence, we'll see the the evidence continues to pile up. I agree. It really is fun, and it's just an amazing truth that we can continue to open up these apologetic gifts, these truths of the gospel and of God's word, and we can continue to open them for the rest of our lives and still not uncover them all because God's word is just that amazing and there's just so much there. I pray that you would continue to keep digging, to keep learning, and to spend more time in God's word and specifically in these prophecies that will just blow your mind uh, as they have ours. Well, thank you for joining us at The Universe Next Door, and we'll see you back here next week. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida, and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in the universe next door.